Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to the the New Books Network in New Books and Sports. Uh, I am Dr. Jorge Red from Texas Tech University. And today I am visiting with Gabe Logan, and we're going to talk a little bit about his book, The Early Years of Chicago Soccer, 1887 to 1939, which was published in 2019 by Lexington Books. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jorge. I'm happy to join you today. I really like this book because, again, it's it's not just about soccer. It's not just about sport, but it is about the ramifications of people, different people, different types of people playing sport and what it means to them as uh, members of an ethnic group, members of a union, uh, citizens of the city of Chicago. Why don't you take a a few moments and tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your degrees, where you work, and how you came to be interested in this topic. Sure. I currently am employed at Northern Michigan University uh, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, so we're somewhat remote, snowy capital on Lake Superior. Um, I'm a full professor at NMU, and I'm also the contract officer for the faculty union. So those are my official titles and, uh, and professor of history. My academic background, I started uh, with a Bachelor of Science of Education at Missouri Southern in Joplin, Missouri, and I did my master's and doctorate in history after 10 years of teaching in the public schools at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb outside of Chicago. And uh, my professors there, uh, my my academic focus was on immigration history and labor history. And I played soccer fairly competitively for 40 years. And uh, so I wanted to take that athletic experience into my academics. And those were the two other prisms that I used to look at the history of early Chicago soccer through the prisms of uh, labor history and immigration history and sport history. 
Okay. Okay. Now, now, obviously, uh, anyone who knows a little bit about the history of uh, of soccer in the United States uh, recognizes that Chicago, along with St. Louis, uh, were two of the main, the principal hotbeds of the sport early on in the well, in the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you came to find out about the topic of Chicago uh, soccer and, and sort of the history of Chicago soccer. And how did you make the decision to begin work on, on, on this project? Yeah, my master, when I was working on my master's, I took a closer look at the history of soccer in St. Louis. And I was intrigued by that because St. Louis is, has a, a, a little bit of a unique soccer history in that it was a for lack of a better word, native-born sport. That is, uh, it was readily available to those people playing in St. Louis beyond the immigrant community. And in fact, about the time soccer really took hold in St. Louis in the early 1900s, immigration had slowed quite a bit to St. Louis, yet the game continued alongside of uh, United States football and significantly baseball. And so this kind of planted the seed. And I, I asked this question, why is it a native sport in St. Louis and perceived to be a foreign sport elsewhere? And uh, by that time, I had moved to Chicago and I began looking at the leagues. And I wanted to, I wanted to see if that story played out in Chicago. And I found a, I found a s- slight similarities in that it was uh, embraced by the native-born community, but Chicago continued to have these immigration waves who also augmented the the native community with new tactics. And so where the East Coast, where it was the professional leagues were primarily um, immigration leagues and immigrants brought over to play professional soccer, the Midwest seems to have been a little different in that it was native-born mostly in St. Louis and a mixture in Chicago. Okay, okay. Well, and, and we'll flesh out a lot more of these ideas as we begin uh, as we begin going through the book. So let, let's just start off with really some of the, the basic points here. How does the game begin in Chicago? Who are the main participants? What did they hope to get out of the sport? And how does soccer interact with the traditional American sports like baseball and, and, and football uh, that, that you mentioned? How, do, how does that soccer interact with those other sports uh, in the early in the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century? Right. British immigrants uh, brought soccer to Chicago, primarily from Scotland as they did in much of the world. Uh, That was the favored kicking code in Great Britain, England, Scotland, and Wales, and Northern Ireland. And um, when these immigrants arrived in Chicago, they wanted to recreate these sporting and recreation institutions. Um, And they often developed in the Caledonian clubs for the Scottish and the cricket clubs for for the English and um, they were used to they were used to assert British identity and to kind of recreate pastimes that were popular uh, in Great Britain. But they were also used to bring 
these immigrants together. So uh, holidays such as the Queen's birthday would be set aside and soccer matches would be played along with other um, other ways of asserting their ethnic identity. Um, I, I found that one of the one sport history often looks at the cricket clubs in the United States. They eventually drew middle-class Americans into them and changed into baseball clubs. But for those cricket clubs, certainly in Chicago, that remain cricket, uh, this also became a, a place that soccer prospered. And that's often been overlooked by sport historians that in these cricket clubs, while they made the transition from cricket to baseball, uh, they were able to retain soccer. And that's what allowed it to develop in Chicago. Um, In the early, I'm sorry, in the late 1800s, soccer was one of the better non-baseball drawing games. Uh, Naturally, in Chicago, baseball was king. But crowds in the low thousands often turned out for these early soccer matches. Uh, This was especially the case at Pullman in South Chicago in the Pullman community, where soccer was probably the largest drawing game in the community. Uh, Other large fan support uh, sporting events were the high school games for American football and, of course, uh, Stag at University of Chicago. And surprisingly, Chicago had a quite active Gaelic football that was uh, taken up by the firstborn Irish community. And they also sponsored soccer alongside Gaelic football. Okay. Okay. Now, one of, one of the things that I found particularly interesting and in, in, in now we're moving, I guess, into chapter, into chapter two of your book is that ultimately there is so, there is, there's such a level of support for soccer in Chicago that ultimately people like Charles Kaminsky and Ben Johnson, uh, baseball entrepreneurs, become involved in the sport. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that connection takes place? Sure, that's a fascinating part of the story as well. Uh, Kaminsky had uh, long-standing roots to South Chicago, and uh, that's where the game was initially played on an organized level. And one of the foremost teams, in addition to the Pullman Palace Car Company, was a cricket club known as the Wanderers Cricket Club. And it was their grounds that Kaminsky purchased and erected uh, Comiskey Park. So the White Sox were playing on an old cricket ground slash soccer field that had been going on for 20 years. Um, So being the sport entrepreneur that he was, I'm sure he was aware of these large crowds that were turning out to see soccer and alongside cricket and alongside um, baseball. Uh, while While this was taking on, in the late 1800s, on the East Coast, there were six baseball franchises, I believe it was six, maybe eight, that uh, were looking to fill their baseball stadiums in the fall. And so they asked, they tried to create a professional soccer league to play in the fall, and it lasted for eight weeks. Um, and several of the ball club owners in Chicago, including Comiskey, and in St. Louis and Detroit, Cleveland, um, they looked at that idea as well and said, let's try that 
in Chicago and in the Midwest. And in 1901, these four clubs put together a professional soccer league. And I think one of the goals was to fill the stadiums in the fall. Uh, but it didn't work out too well. The train the train fares wouldn't, they wouldn't give them a break to haul the athletes from city to city. Detroit immediately dropped out. Uh, Milwaukee jumped in. And so there was this inner city league between Cleveland, uh, St. Louis, Chicago, and Milwaukee. And then Cleveland went away, so it was just the three the three remaining teams, and it lasted for a home-and-away series each, and then the plug was pulled on that. Now, let me ask, let me ask you this, then. Why was there, do you think, uh, a certain amount of resistance to soccer uh, was that part of the the issue as well? You know, besides the the the, the economic, uh, the cost of moving the players from one to and it was soccer at even at this point was soccer considered quote uh, a foreign sport? Uh, not and certainly not in St. Louis. Okay, and uh, the Chicago professional team. It was mostly British, but they they had a number of of uh, Illinois-born players on there as well. Um, I don't think there was any resistance to it. The initial game, it was a downpour in St. Louis, and people didn't want to. People didn't show up. It was okay. a paltry crowd, and the St. Louis team wouldn't split the the gate with uh, Chicago, and money started coming out of the players' pocket and Comiskey pocket, and he said, "Well, you know, I'm not." I'm not doing that. Yeah. Uh, however, Comiskey remained a strong supporter of uh, Chicago soccer all the way up to the 1940s, and often uh, large games were played in his stadium. And he was on several committees that sponsored the game, uh, both semi-professionally and professionally in the, in the city. Okay. Now, another part of 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 Chapter Two that you that that you discuss is. How does immigration and emphasis on recreation during the progressive era, now we're moving into the very early part of the 20th century, uh, how does this emphasis on recreation, the issue of continued immigration in Chicago, and the growing influence of labor, how does how do all three of those areas sort of influence the game of soccer in Chicago? Yeah. Uh, the progressive period, one of the, for sport historians, one of the hallmarks was the playground movement. Mm-hmm. And um, this coincided, you know, again, Chicago had the Hall House and was quite concerned with how to take care of immigrants, how to Americanize immigrants. And uh, they had this park director by the name of Edward de Groot, who was quite the enthusiastic soccer supporter. And around Pullman in the South Park City, uh, South Parks, uh, around Pullman and South Chicago, uh, as these playgrounds began to develop, he insisted that soccer be a part of it. And it created, he created uh, a significant soccer program in the South Parks, beginning with the midget leagues or juniors, uh, all the way up to adults. And uh, Jerry Jims has done a lot of work on this, and Stephen Reese, where these athletic fields in the parks became contested between the various groups uh, for maybe base for baseball and football. 
In soccer, it what that wasn't the case. The fields weren't contested. They were used um, to play soccer, and it became this youth interethnic, uh, for lack of a better word, melting pot of bringing all these uh, different immigrant group children together to play in the city. So the South Parks and DeGroot, his efforts really incubated these firstborn and native-born players that would uh, continue to take up, would continue to play the game during the progressive era, era and into the 1920s. Okay. Well, and, and, and actually that answer is a very nice transition to chapter three, which is in, in, in which you, you discuss the rise of native-born soccer players. So how did this change the setting or, or the, the reality of soccer in Chicago during the, I guess, the latter part of the, uh, of the progressive era? Yeah. Uh, after World War I, uh, the nativist movements in the United States and 1924 brought the century of immigration to a close with the quota system, as we all, as historians know. Um, so this cut off the pipeline of these immigrants that were coming unfettered into the United States and Chicago. Um, they were often young males, and they were bringing their sporting and soccer traditions with them to Chicago. Um, so that that pipeline was shut off and in its place there was all these players that had played in the high schools and had played in the park districts that were now reaching the age to play uh, for the clubs in Chicago as adults and so it took on a much more significant native flavor uh, flavor and I think what what exemplifies this the most in 1920, St. Louis entered the United States Open Cup for the first time, and that's the top soccer trophy in the United States. And fittingly, St. Louis had an all-native-born St. Louis team, and they played an all-English-born Fall River, Massachusetts, Four River, uh, Massachusetts team, and St. Louis won. And it's seen as, a, in soccer history terms, this big movement of the first time St. Louis enters, they bring a native-born team in, and they win the championship. Mm-hmm. On their way to winning that game, they had to go through Chicago, and it was, a, it was a heck of a game. They ended up playing Olympia, and that was a team out of Chicago's Czech community, but everyone on that team was also all Chicago-born. And so I think that quarterfinal game gives a much more flavor of what was happening in the Midwest and the level of talent as compared to the East Coast. Okay, okay. And, and, and again, you've touched upon some of the, uh, uh, an aspect of the question that you develop in Chapter 4, which is, you know, given your background in education, um, I, I think that that would have been particularly of interest to you, but tell us a little bit about how high school foot, uh, high school soccer develops in Chicago. What are some of the key teams? Uh, who are some of the key I- individuals involved? Uh-huh. Uh, the game started in 1904, I believe, in uh, Lane Tech and Englewood High School in the city. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Archibald Bryce was an early 
soccerite in Chicago. He had played in England, and he was also an educate. He was also in the school districts, and so he wanted uh, soccer to be there alongside football and baseball and the other sports that were being played, and mm-hmm. so. He introduced the game in 1904, and it was well-received. Then, I think that same year, possibly 1906, Oak Park, which is a suburb of Chicago, the first suburb outside Chicago, also adopted soccer. And along with another uh, suburban high school, Morton. And so there was this initial four-team circuit that played for a city championship and played for a suburban championship, and then those two teams came together. <clears throat> and within a fairly short amount of time, uh, by the 1920s, there was about 15, 20 schools that were featuring varsity soccer. And so it was another one of these incubation centers, uh, and a lot of these kids, as they graduated from high school, realized they still like playing the game, and... Uh, continued into the adult leagues. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Another, another part, uh, another aspect of of, of chapter four is the development of some of these players into professionals. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. The best example for that would be Morton high school. And uh, this was the high school of the Czech community and the Czechs, entered Chicago soccer <laughs> quite aggressively uh, to challenge the native-born teams and the English and Scottish teams uh, with their own brand of soccer and the large Czech community in, in the city. And so they had these juvenile teams, uh, but they looked around also saw the possibility of the high school team. Mm-hmm. And so they aligned their professional team, Sparta Soccer Club, uh, and they supplied coaches and facilities and sometimes uniforms to Morton High School. And a lot of these players ended up playing both on the juvenile team and in the high school team and then just graduating right up into the adult leagues. Um, in fact, when Sparta finally brought the Open Cup to Chicago for the first time, a quarter of that team had roots uh, from that high school, from their high school experience. Okay. Okay. Tell me a little bit about now we're moving out beyond the, 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 the progressive era. And now we're getting closer to the, the coming of the great depression. How does the great depression impact, uh, impact the game? Yeah. Well, obviously, the economic engine of the United States shuts down, and some of the stronger professional teams that were sponsored by industry, such as the Pullman Car Builders, Joliet Steel, uh, the Bricklayers Union, the Carpenters Union, these were powerful professional teams that were bringing players in to play, and that that was their job. And it was uh, it was good for the in the case of the bricklayers, it was a, a union sporting voice to play against uh, company teams like Pullman or like Joliet Steel. Um, when the Great Depression came along, of course, this financial backing collapsed, and the professional teams that were quite vibrant in the city uh, 
fell apart, and they had to turn to the ethnic clubs uh, for support that were still able to to pay these players. And so this is Sparta really takes off in the Czech community, Kuppenheimer in the Jewish community, the clothing store. Um, so the Great Depression causes the old industrial teams to kind of go by the wayside and mm-hmm. the ethnic clubs come into prominence. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off tell tell me a little bit more about the the various ethnics of that you you've mentioned sparta you've mentioned a couple others uh, are there any other other ethnic clubs that uh, that you found particularly interesting as as you were doing your research yeah by the late 1920s almost every ethnic community in chicago seemed to have fielded a team. The Germans had their own league and they would put together a championship German team that would play the other ethnic teams. The Italians had several teams. Um, The Danes, the Scandinavians, all the Scandinavian countries, uh, Danes, Norwegians, Swedes, they all had clubs and teams that competed. Uh, Mm. the The Polish communities uh, kind, kind of a surprise given Chicago's long history. It took them till 1929 to bring a team into the league. Uh, and when they did, they, they never looked back. And then, uh, per your own research, the Latino communities in Chicago, it would be in the late 20s, but mostly during the Great Depression, where they too would enter teams and uh, the first Mexican team in Chicago took its name from Nacaxa in uh, Mexico, and the electricians, and they were part of the old Chicago Communist League where they found a home, and humble beginnings, and they're still alive and well. (laughs) Really? uh, So, uh, now that I didn't know, tell me a little bit about, you know, Nacaxa, the, the the, this Mexican team that contained, that has had, you know, obviously a very long run in the history of Chicago. What can you tell us about that? The, I think it, I, the records are, are scarce with the origins of this team. Mm-hmm. Um, the community members seem to have come from the part of Mexico that was also where Nacoxa's soccer team is and use that name in honor of where they came from. Uh, league fees were expensive, but 14 teams got together under the auspice of the Communist Party in Chicago, and the games were cheaper. They played in the parks. They they fielded their own referees. 
uh, low, very low cost. And so they began playing in this, the labor sport union into the communist league. And then as the great depression finally lifted after world war two, their clubhouse that they purchased was the old socialist was one of the old German Turner bond socialist hall. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's another connection of this playing for the people movement. Uh, of course, now that commu- that the Latino and Latinx communities in Chicago, you know, it's one of the main engines of the soccer in Chicago today. Okay. And it started back then. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, now, and again, you've, you've touched a bit, a bit on this, and this is actually taking us into, into chapter five. Uh, how does the game change during the years of the Great Depression, and what role does this growing diversity among Chicago's immigrant? How does it impact the sport at this time? You know, you're you're making it sound as if these different ethnic teams had, you know, good competition, and you didn't have any issues as far as, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a very bitter rivalry. Was that the case, or, or did you have? Uh, situations where maybe things got a little out of hand uh, between particular clubs. The the ethnic communities <clears throat> by the Great Depression became sponsors of the team, and they were always happy to have the sons of the first immigrants, and and sometimes the daughters. Every now and then, they would they would have a female team in the ethnic clubs, mm-hmm. um, but so. But they were also looking to win, and with the immigration pipeline uh, cut off, these teams such as Sparta, they began to look for the best players, and the German clubs did this as well. So these old industrial teams uh, that went under, now these players, were they would play for the team that would pay them as much as anybody could. Yeah. And so it became an ethnic club, but the players tended to play for that club. They weren't necessarily of that ethnic community, although many were. Um, that was that was the big change. And then the second, I had to look at, okay, what businesses were able to continue during the Great Depression? Mm-hmm. And ethnic department stores, such as Weebolts, uh, such as leaders in Chicago, um, these people, uh, milk, milk and dairy uh, companies as well, Ogden, they began to pick up the bill to sponsor soccer teams. So it moved from these industrial backings to these smaller community enterprises that began backing them in conjunction with the ethnic club. Okay. And then an, another big one was the repeal of prohibition right. and uh, the beer industry uh, began to sponsor teams as well. Well, and, and you know what? As as you were mentioning that, that I, I actually was just jotting that down. Tell us a little bit about the the beer the beer clubs and and how significant those organizations were. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories I stumbled across in the book. I figured I figured as much. <laughs> um, in Milwaukee. Uh, Schlitz put together a, a, a big team. Schlitz put together uh, the best players in Milwaukee, and we're drawing that. St. Louis, of course, with Anheuser-Busch, 
their big team was the Central Brewing Company. And uh, a lot of these East Coast players that no longer had a team to play for uh, found their way to the Midwest to play for the breweries. Um, one of Chicago's breweries at the time was the Manhattan Brewing Company. And uh, in 1938, they said, we're going to put together a team. And it was it went from not having a team to collecting some of the best soccer stars in Chicago and the United States. And in one season, Manhattan Brewers went from not having a team to runner-up in the National Cup to mm-hmm. folding. And it was a meteoric rise and just a sudden crashing ending for it. Uh, Manhattan Brewery, of course, is is quite the controversial brewery because it was mafia money. Really? And, oh, yeah. Johnny Torino had that brewery. And then when he gave up the mob and went back to Italy, Al Capone took it over. And uh, it was one of the producers of Near Beer and Beer in Chicago. And then the 1930s, when prohibition went away um the mafia took over the bartenders union in chicago and said you're going to sell manhattan and there's in the book i've traced that record of how they threatened the union bosses and the bartenders union with death threats and so forth but it worked and manhattan became the leading selling beer in chicago and part of those profits went to field this phenomenal soccer team then then it, it seems like they had a pretty good, pardon me for saying it this way, racket going on here. Why does the team fold then so quickly after after a championship season? I think Manhattan became soured on the prospect after that one season and one loss. They'd put in all this money. They had hired the former uh, runner-up of the mayor, a, a guy by the name of Luden, who used to who was also the postmaster, he was the Republican candidate for the mayor. He became president of the company, and uh, they put a significant amount of money into this team, and they had purchased uniforms, they had purchased these players' contracts, they had bought the rights to a soccer facility, and it wasn't, and and radio announcement, and it wasn't paying off. Uh, I guess it was all or nothing. They won the championship or they were pulling the plug, and so it only lasted this one season. Okay. Okay. Now, let me just backtrack just for a second, because you also did mention in in passing that there were some female clubs. What can you tell us about their experiences? What did the game mean to these women? How long did the game, did these teams last and what was significant about them? This was a very challenging part of the book to research. Um, and it, it mostly lent itself to a couple of passing references in the newspapers and mm. three photographs. But this was also part of the park district. And the park district offered soccer for the female gymnasiums. <clears throat> and two businesses, um, the trans workers, which was a, it was a, transportation outfit put together a females recreation team and the players for that seem to have come from the park district the graduates from the park district the other was again sparta uh who who put together a woman's team uh, a late teenager early adult women's team 
all I have of that is an image, um, but it seems like it w- it had a it had a connection to Western Electric, which hired a lot of uh, Czechoslovakian American women to work in their factories, and uh, the other was Pullman and Pullman Technical School um, put together a soccer team, a female soccer team, and these three teams played each other in a home and away series for a round robin from about 1922 through, I think, 1925. Okay. Okay. Um, you know what? Let me, let me just add, let me just ask you one other, one other point from this particular chapter, chapter five, um, you, and you've touched on it, uh, but I want you to maybe spend a, a couple minutes on this. How does soccer give back to the community during the era of the Great Depression. What are these soccer teams doing now? You you kind of have touched upon this, especially with the with the uh, the discussion of of uh, of some of the beer teams and, and and sort of the the impact that they have. But how does soccer give back to the community during these difficult economic times of the Great Depression? There were a couple of uh, matches that were uh, exclude where the gate. Uh, went to the unemployed community. Uh, And so the ethnic communities would have these all-star games or these championship matches, and the players were donating their time and that the profit from those would go back to the various clubs membership who were struggling to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. So that would be, that would be one way. Um, It also served as a point of ethnic pride uh, the soccer teams were saying, well, we're still here. We're still playing. We're still surviving. Um, and the people could point to that, go to the games for relatively, it wasn't anything like in the 20s, um, but tickets were were still modestly priced to where people could go. And looking at some of the images from those times, um, this was a place to be dressed up for. It, it was a significant social outing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it became a point of civic pride to still have these teams. There were charity matches that gave back to the community. <clears throat> Those were the two big points during the Great Depression. Okay. Was there any connection between some of these clubs and, say, religious organizations? And did that, did that impact uh, the sport in any way? <clears throat> Not that I found. Uh, okay. that, and that changes from St. Louis. And St. Louis... Uh, the Catholic Soledads were sponsoring the clubs. That wasn't necessarily the case in Chicago. Okay. Okay. One last, one last question as far as the, the timeline that you present in, in the, uh, in the manuscript, you, you finish off in 1939. How does the sport of soccer change in Chicago after that, after that time, after that moment in time, why do you end the book in 1939, and how does things, how do things change after uh, after the start of World War II? In 1938, 1939, and 1940, Chicago sent a team to the championship match of the Open Cup and won two of them, and that's the first time the trophy ever came to Chicago. And mm-hmm. those three seasons tend to mark the uh, pinnacle of Chicago reaching the top of the game in the United States. And so 
that that's why I ended the work there. Uh, when World War II came around, as much like World War One, that the league lost a significant amount of its members uh, who went to fight in the war, and when they came back, uh, once again the immigration pipelines opened up again. And these ethnic communities saw a degree of a renaissance in terms of players that came to Chicago and rejuvenated the game. Uh, I think it, it seems to have not been the same way it was in World War I, where there were all these native-born players that they had to compete with. Now, after World War II, the game seemed to move more into... Uh, a European or South American or Central American understanding of the game migrating into the ethnic clubs. Okay. Now, you I, I, obviously you don't you don't live in the Chicago area anymore, but and you've touched upon it when we were discussing Nicaxa. Uh, how does the game? What role does the game play in the city of Chicago? At the present time, from from what from what you've uh, what you've seen, it's a mixed bag. It's it's wonderfully popular in terms of players, and mm-hmm. almost any given day there will be a uh, hundred games being played, both indoor and outdoor. Uh, it's it's but the pro league and the pro team when it initially came out. It was pretty well attended, and they just haven't been able that the Chicago Fire haven't right. been able to match what they did when they first started, and so the fan base has turned away. Uh, now there's new owners, and they're moving it back into Soldier Field, which that's going to be interesting since they couldn't since the Chicago Fire had trouble filling twenty thousand soccer specific stadium fans in it. Uh, what it's going to look like in the 68,000 soldier field. Um, yeah. But we'll see. Okay. Okay. Um, are you working on a follow-up to this? Is this something that, that you're, you're going to maybe continue to research? Two papers I'm currently working on. One of them has to do with Detroit soccer. Uh, Holly Carburetors, the Harley, Car- the Holly Carburetor company, uh, put together a, quite a unique team as well that was also a powerhouse in the Midwest, and I'm looking at them. And uh, the research that I stumbled on with Chicago soccer was this Communist League and uh, their whole athletic body, the Labor Sport Union. I've put right. together two papers out of that, and I'm looking to maybe turn that into a modest monograph. Okay, okay, great. Well, um is there any point or any uh, issue in, in, in the book that we haven't discussed that you, you feel is, you, you want, you want to pres- you know, provide uh, that information to our, our listeners? I do. One of the, another intriguing story had to do with Antonius, Anton Cermak, the mayor of Chicago, uh, who was ass- assassinated when he was with FDR in Florida. And Cermak, is was born in Czechoslovakia, uh, but he grew up in Braidwood, Illinois, and Chicago, Illinois. And it's the political history behind him has, has been that one of the ways he was able to 
take over the mayorship was his use of the prohibition issue. He wanted Chicago to stay wet. Uh, What this book uncovered was his deep roots and involvement with soccer, and he used it as a way to reach the various immigrant communities um, that hasn't been recognized until this work. And I, Mm -hmm. I found that quite intriguing. Okay. Okay. So, so in other in other words, soccer or or sport in general is an effect was an effective mechanism for a particular politician or a particular political party to be able to uh, to gain entry and to gain a certain amount of favor with uh, with individual ethnic groups. Yes, agreed. And the constituents, uh, he understood who was coming to the game, and he understood that it was a way to get its vote to get a vote. And the Mayor Cup in Chicago uh, started with as the Cermak Cup uh, back in the 1920s, and it still continues today. Okay, okay. Who are, who are, the, uh, who are the dominant teams uh, at the present time in the, for that cup? Ooh, usually out of the German clubs, uh, Schwaben and the Vikings, uh, th- those tend to be the strongest teams. There's uh, the Metro League in Chicago tends to be the strongest league in Chicago today, and uh, those are gen- teams from that league are generally the contenders. Okay, okay. Well, uh, Gabe, uh, we're at about forty-three minutes into our discussion, I, I, and, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to visit with me today, especially at this moment in time as you are as you're grading papers uh, to finish out your semester. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for visiting with me. Uh, this is a wonderful project. Uh, I, I strongly encourage people to, uh, to, to pick up a copy of the book. Um, I, I want to thank you for being on the show with me today and, and I really enjoyed it. I hope, uh, I hope you had a good time. I certainly did. And I thank you for taking the time to uh, bring it out to people's attention. It's been All a labor right. of love. Thank you. Thank you very much. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.